So I was going back and I was doing the editing on this episode right here and we had originally recorded an intro because we have Bob Young, a contributing writer for The Athletic and former Suns beat writer for 13 years over the Arizona Republic with some really great insight. But we, we did an intro at the very beginning and we recorded for about a half an hour. We talked about everything, uh, all the dysfunction in the organization right now, DeAndre Ayton and Devin Booker getting into a heated exchange. Mikhail Bridges openly disrespecting the coach. He did later apologize. Scouting staff being noticeably absent on the road. The Suns having the worst point differential in the Western Conference since the 95-96 season. But after going back and listening to it, I realized that it was just a half an hour of us bitching. And I'm not sure what added value there is in that for you listening to the episode right now. You've been watching the Suns games. You know how bad it is. So the interview with Bob Young ran a little bit long. So I just decided, you know what, I'm going to nix the intro on this one. And we'll just go straight into Bob Young for a little bit more of an optimistic view of the Suns now as well as uh, the Suns in the 90s. And anyway, we appreciate him coming on and we appreciate you listening to the Suns Solar Panel Podcast. You're listening to the Solar Panel with Greg Esposito, Tim Tompkins, and Dave King. Now back to the show. And joining us on the episode today, it is an honor, it is a privilege to have Mr. Bob Young on. He is a contributing writer for The Athletic, former Suns beat writer for 13 years at the Arizona Republic. You can find him on Twitter at BobYoungThI. So Bob, let me ask you a question. Is coming on the Suns solar panel the highlight or the low light of your career? Uh, I'm just going to put it right in the middle there somewhere. How about that? <laughs> just just below making the NBA Finals, covering the Finals team in 93, right? Yeah, right right in there. Yeah. <laughs> and getting getting married and uh, yeah, having my kids. and Those all happened during my career. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, is, is covering this former or this current iteration of the Suns the highlight or the low light of your career? Uh, this would have to be uh, one of the, if not the low light, one, one of the low low moments. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's tough to watch. It, it truly is. What team, uh, uh, what years did you cover exactly, Bob, on the Republic? Well, I, I started uh, uh, kind of contributing, as a matter of fact, in 92 during, during the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And then I was on the beat uh, full time from that offseason, right before Barkley was uh, – join the team so i was i was there until uh actually middle of uh the uh season that marbury was traded marbury oh yeah the last the the last game that i covered was uh i think it was january 30th of that year and it was in new york and it was the first time that they played uh against marbury after after that trade so that was, and then I started doing the heat index, which was a a, a column, kind of a Sunday start. column inside the inside the cover yeah. of the of the sports section. I read it every day, or every Sunday anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, Bob. So basically, you were the beat writer during one of the one of the most memorable periods of of Suns lore. So you joined just before Barkley was acquired, and you left just before Steve Nash was acquired. Right. Yeah, the second time he was acquired. The second time yeah. he was acquired. Yeah. You were there for the first yeah. time. That's a very good distinction. But yes, the MVP yeah. Nash, MVP yeah. Steve, uh, was Paul Coro's beat. 
and yes. uh, you were the you were the Barkley and, good timing, and all that good, good timing on my part there, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll bet you were like, oh. <laughs> um, I was so, feeling sorry for Coral because they were so bad the previous year, you know. Well, exactly. I mean, that year, and I was like, God, I feel bad leaving them with this, and then yeah, then they get Nash and seven seconds or less takes off, and uh, yeah, yeah, he had it pretty easy for a while. I still remember actually him and Dan Bickley. Uh, let's see. When I started covering the team was in 2012. Yeah, I know it sucks. Um, when I started covering the team in 2012, the Suns haven't made the playoffs in my tenure. I remember Coro and Bickley talking uh, that spring of 2013, going, "Well, at least we don't have the grind of the playoffs." Man, that was getting old after a while. <laughs> Yeah, you know it's funny. I I feel guilty a lot because uh, I used to rip them because they were they were getting eliminated in the first round all the time. You know, right towards the end of my, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and, uh, and uh, now they can't they can't even sniff them. That's the, that's the panacea, man. <laughs> yeah, it was, thir- it was thirteen years in a row at one point um, that they were in the playoffs, and I, I remember they that that finally ended and. I uh, ended up taking my old man to the uh, Indy 500 because it was the first time I hadn't didn't have that playoff stuff to worry about. It was it was wild, you know. Now it's I I never ever would have believed that they would go nine years in a row without the playoffs, which I'm pretty sure they're going to do. <laughs> yeah, if not ten or eleven, uh, yeah, yeah, a whole decade, man. This is a franchise who uh, made the playoffs 29 of their first 42 years in existence. Uh, admittedly, there were years. Now, Bob, I know you're saying you ripped them a little bit during their during some of your final years because they get out in the first round. Admittedly, back in that time, uh, the Eastern Conference was was much better um, than it yes. is today, as far as competitive balance and all that. And the West kind of squeaking in it with a 500 record on a regular basis. I think even one year they were under 500. They made the playoffs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's the West isn't the same now. Uh, certainly, that forty-eight win Suns team of thirteen fourteen could have broken this little string, uh, but right. the West was right. so good they couldn't make it in. And then the next year they were thirty-nine and forty-three, and I think a team with a similar record made the playoffs in the, in one of your years. Um, yeah. So you know, this has been a really bad stretch, but it's coincided with the uh, the best stretch of Western Conference basketball um, in the last twenty years as well. So okay, so Bob, let's um, let's talk about dealing with front offices. So as a beat writer, um, you have some expectation, I'm sure, from your from your higher powers that uh, you need to talk to some of the people that that the public or not the public, but the the regular uh, media scrum don't get to talk to all the time. So you have expectations of talking to players and coaches in front office off off. Um, you know, off the beaten, regular beaten path, so to speak. What was it like working with the Suns front office folks back then uh, compared to what it's like now? Because one of your expectations as a columnist for The Athletic is also to get those off the beaten path type of of interviews and and, uh, working, you know, talking to people behind the scenes. So tell me what the the difference is between the two. Well, you know, uh, first of all, it, it I should probably say that it was different dealing with uh, that son's front office than it would have been dealing with any front office even at that time. You know, uh, Jerry Colangelo's background was marketing, you know, and so he he had a uh, he always had a pretty good relationship and was very accessible. Um, 
I mean, I remember calling him in Carmel, his vacation home and stuff. You know, he made sure everybody could reach him. Uh, the other thing that he was very good about was whenever things were going bad or something happened that was controversial, his kind of philosophy was, you know, if you if you meet it head on and answer the questions, then it, it's a it's a one day, two day story. If you try to avoid it, it's it just strings it out and it ends up becoming <clears throat> longer longer story so he wanted to uh, you know he always tried to basically be available and answer the questions uh good or bad um brian his son when he kind of took control was a little bit more difficult and uh but i mean he was his expectations of the media let's say were a little bit different but he was still very accessible i mean it wasn't hard it, you could call the guy at any time and and he would take your call and uh you know you didn't have to go through a pr person to set something up you could just call him. uh th this front office now uh robert sarver to my knowledge this season has done one one interview and that that was with their flagship radio station after he fired the general manager something there i know that several of us have well, he out. famously I said it was time to learn how to win yes yeah that's right it has been time for uh, years, but <laughs> uh, unfortunately, they haven't had the teams to do it. Uh, but anyway, so you know, yeah, it's it's been it's been more difficult. Uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, I didn't really deal much with Ryan McDonough. Uh, I know uh, maybe some people had problems getting him when when I was still at the Republic. I was able to reach him pretty easily. Um, when I, you know, of course I came back to do this and he got fired before the season even started. So yeah, uh, I don't, I can't even, I can't even tell you how accessible he is. Uh, what James kind of Jones, access? Yeah. James Jones, go ahead. Yeah. James has been, um, you know, I asked for him early on, uh, when they kind of got off to a bad start and he was, you know, he, it took a, it took a few days, but I managed to get him and, and sit down with him, you know, one-on-one -on -one and stuff. So I think it's just, you know, their, their culture's a little different in terms of, you know, everything has to go through, uh, the, the PR system and, and, uh, you know, kind of be predetermined and they kind of want to know what you want to ask about and that kind of stuff. Whereas before, you know, if you saw, if I saw Brian Colangelo at a game or walking down the hall, I just start, you know, I could just start talking to him and asking him questions. Uh, uh, it was the same thing really with, even with Steve Kerr and, you know, Mike D'Antoni and guys like that at that time. Well, I found that to be true of James um, as well. If you catch yeah. him on the sideline or walking around, he's, he's certainly more than willing to talk to you. Right. I do want to say that um, I... I love working with the Suns PR. They have they have different expectations given to them by others on on accessibility and all that. Julie Fye has been around uh, since probably maybe even before your time, right, Bob? No, we we started the same year. You started the same year, okay? Yeah, yeah. no, Julie's been Julie's been incredible. DC, all the all the folks in this in the media relations group have been really really good to work with. It's just uh, they have different expectations given to them by by the folks around them for sure. So, um, yeah, I, I appreciate that kind of insight. I know it's been difficult to get a hold of certainly uh, Robert during this time and to get him to talk about things. I think part of it might be that he knows that whatever he's thinking at the moment may not be what actually gets put on the court. Uh, so he's kind of getting himself stuck. And he's pretty obvious. He wants the Suns to win games. Um, but 
the actions that he takes to make those games, uh, you know, put those rosters together and all that and in his front offices, you don't know. You really don't know who's responsible for the roster completely that's out there. Um, we hear that Robert Sarver will, you know, veto this and, and recommend that and insist on the other thing. Um, but really 90% of the moves, wouldn't you say, is uh, – would well, what would you say, uh, Bob, is are 90%, 70%, 50% of the moves – uh, Robert Sarver's doing or most of those the the front office guys and he just agrees with it most of the time I think most of the time he probably agrees with them uh, and you know I should say here that you know I haven't been around it for the last couple of years so it's hard for me to judge uh, you know a lot of that I have uh, spoken with people that are familiar with some of the things that have happened and uh, I do think that he you know, as much as he probably doesn't want, you know, or tries to stay out of this, uh, he, you know, he is passionate. You can't, I don't think yeah. you can take that away from him. I think he does <clears throat> want to win and he's passionate about it and, and about the team. And, you know, sometimes the problem is I think if you want, if you want to have consistency and you want to have, you know, respect around the league, you have to, you have to have basketball people that you trust and, you know, you, you may have to step in from time to time and express your opinion, but ultimately you got to let those guys do their job or, or, you know, there you, if you keep undermining them, uh, even if it's just on big, you know, here and there, a big decision or whatever, you know, that everybody in the league under, after a while knows what's going on. And, then it, it really, you know, it undermines the people that are trying to do those jobs. The best thing that that guy could do, in my opinion, is to hire a really good basketball guy and just get out of his way. I, I just don't know if he can do that. And and I don't, I, I don't want to put you in an um, – you didn't cover the team during the, the seven seconds or less area. So you barely covered the team with Robert Sarver as the owner. So you don't really have all that firsthand, right? Well, um, I got it on a beat not on a beat writer basis i was i was writing columns and stuff so i did deal with i did deal with robert uh, okay so, well that's yeah. a, that's good so do you think his his uh way of dealing with media or way of dealing with stories like you said jerry getting out in front of things has that changed over the years at all or has it always been yeah, this way no i think it yeah i think it has i think he was pretty accessible <clears throat> uh early on and of course you know let's let's face it you know he he when he bought the Suns, he kind of had the, you know, a Midas touch, everything, you know, that he, he work, did seem yeah. to work out. And, uh, you know, he bought the Suns and they went and got Steve Nash and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're a really entertaining, you know, high energy, uh, kind of revolutionary team. So, you know, yeah, he was happy to talk about it and stuff, but, you know, almost from the beginning, though, he was he was getting involved in stuff. I, I don't think there's any question that, you know, the the whole Joe Johnson thing uh, at that time. Yeah. yeah, that was Robert. He just didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to pay and he handled it poorly. And and I I can tell you that that came back back to bite him uh, a few mm -hmm. years ago. Yeah. So, and then um, there's also the the Kurt Thomas trade. Um, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. basically that was an edict down from everybody's mm -hmm. pretty clear that that was an edict down from him to clear that contract off the books. Right. Yeah. And that, you know, I started to say the, uh, the, uh, Aldridge deal, I, you know, he has the uh, same agent that Joe Johnson had at the time. And I, I think those kind of things come back to bite you, you know, that yeah. 
the uh, the agent doesn't want to send his player to to this team because of you know his past experience and you're not talking about a small time agent there you're talking about Arn Tellum you know right. it's a big name so uh, yeah that those kind of things will you know they linger and and uh, I think that's one of the reasons I don't think it's the only reason but it's one of the reasons that they're where they are they they are now yeah okay um, thank you so. Now we have a segment. It's called Solar Opposites. Uh, Tim is going to lead us through this foray. He's going to explain all the rules, and then we're going to each have a take on on the questions that Tim poses us. So let's let's get into it here. The Sun Solar Panel Podcast now available on Spotify. Just search Sun Solar Panel. Now back to three awkward guys talking about the suns. Okay, so the way that this works, Bob, and you listening is you each have one minute to respond. I'm going to time it, and then you get a 30-second rebuttal. And I will cut you off once the minute and the 30-second happens, and then I get to judge who gets the point for having the better argument, not the better opinion. Okay. <laughs> Great. So, yeah. right. Do I win a prize? Like, you know, <laughs> like, Lifetime supply and nothing. You get you get this uh, you get the knowledge of knowing you came on the solar panel and won. Okay. Right. Isn't hard to do. Or lost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So we are going to start this off with you, Bob. What is the most memorable moment of the Suns in the nineteen nineties? Okay. Um, you know, to me, I, obviously a lot of people would, would think of the uh, John Paxson shot in the finals uh, in 93. But, but for me, my, one of my uh, most memorable experiences were uh, the, the two New York Knicks games that year. Um, and the reason I say that is because the, the big question about the Suns at that time was kind of, you know, whether they were going to be tough enough to, to compete with the best teams they had had a reputation for being a kind of a pretty team that scored a lot of points but wasn't really good in the playoffs and uh, New York was kind of the measuring stick for toughness in those days uh, that was Pat Riley's teams um, and and then of course there were two incidents in those games first first of all they played uh, on my birthday as a matter of fact in Madison Square Garden uh, and Charles Barkley's gift to me that day was to leap over the scorers table at the end of the game and chase Jimmy Clark one of the referees <laughs> up the corridor in Madison Square Garden. Bob, so. time's up. No. Oh, <laughs> right. Yes. Have to save that for the rebuttal. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Dave, what's the most memorable Just moment? Me the second game was the one with, with the bench clearing brawl. Greg Anthony punch. Oh, too bad, man. Too bad you couldn't make that argument. <laughs> but he does, he does have a chance for a rebuttal. Dave, what say you? How about that bench? No, I'm not going to take the bench clearing brawls. <laughs> uh, for me, uh, for me, that most memorable moment, um, you know, it's when Charles Barkley hit the game winner uh, to beat. I think it was, oh, dang it, it was Seattle, I think, or maybe it was the Spurs. Um, yeah, yeah, San Antonio. That's it, the Spurs. Um, that was just to me, just Charles just walking that, walking that down. And um, and just just making that shot. I'm pretty sure it was over David Robinson. Now that I'm thinking about it, yeah. Um, that's just knowing that the Suns finally had that MVP. Knowing that that MVP was actually going to deliver in the playoffs was just like uh, that's that's just you know incredible. The Suns haven't had a guy 
who not only was billed as the MVP, but actually played like the MVP and delivered those key shots. They hadn't had any of that. I know uh, they're fans of the 76 run and all that, but really, that to me was the moment, my Dave, most memorable up. moment. <laughs> Damn it. And Bob, you have 30 seconds. Well, I, you know, that was definitely a big moment. Uh, I think at that time the Suns expected to beat San Antonio, but um, I would I would go back to the New York series, uh, the the brawl in the second game uh, when Greg Anthony came off the bench in street clothes and punched Kevin Johnson and Pat Riley ripped his britches out in his <laughs> Armani suit. That was big. <laughs> All right, Dave. All right, yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying on those moments because you're, those moments exhibited the uh, the Suns' need for toughness, and my moments my moment exhibited the Suns' need for a winner who would make that key shot, even in a series you were supposed to win to actually make the shots to win. Um, so those are I think I think those are those are two pretty good examples, and and Tim's going to have to decide which ones are the best. <laughs> I I am, and I'm going to go with Bob on this one just because there were punches thrown. I think that that is a more memorable moment. <laughs> I I accept that I accept that judgment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, ad- admittedly, uh, I am 36 years old, so my time watching the Suns in the 90s was uh, not as clear as it light. was for you guys. A little yeah. light in the britches. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I get to I get to go back and, and sometimes they'll have the 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 NBA classic games on and I get to watch those, but it's not the same as being there in the moment and, and living it. Right, right. So well, I will give Dave this. That that you know, I hadn't even thought of that moment at, at actually, but it that really at the time that was a very that is very true. That was a big moment because it you know, that, that team and you remember that that team barely got out of that first round right. against against the Lakers. the Lakers so yeah. that was yeah that was a huge moment and the fact that he did it over David Robinson who was at that time was probably the best you know defensive big man in the league that was that was pretty impressive yeah okay you ready for our next our next no. round I gotta win the Dave, next round man you do the second question we're gonna start this off with Dave what was the most talented roster of the 90s yeah, I'm going to say that 93 roster, and, and really because you had that MVP right there in his prime, playing the best year of his entire career uh, in Charles Barkley. And you and, and that was just being added on to, no offense to Jeff Hornacek, who is a wonderful person, and, and I loved having him back as the coach a few years ago. Um, no offense to Jeff, but uh, that was basically adding on to a conference finals team uh, with KJ and Tom Chambers and all that. It was it was a little disappointing uh, for a purist Suns fan um, to see how minimalized Tom Chambers had to become during, for that team. He was also getting older, but uh, Barkley basically took his spot in the in the rotation, and Chambers became a backup. But the fact that a guy who scored sixty points in a game was an All Star was the best free agent signing in the history of the franchise, and the first free agent signing in the history of the NBA um, was relegated to a bench role. Uh, that shows you that that had to have been the most talented team that we had in 1993, 92, 93, when the yeah. when the Suns went Time's to the up. finals. All right, Bob. Well, I you know that. The- Good. It's a good point. I like, uh, obviously, a team that made it to the finals had to be pretty darn talented, and, and that was Barkley's best year. But I'm going to go with 94-95 when they had a healthy Danny Manning. Mm-hmm. Uh, that team was 39-10 and 10 when he uh, blew out his knee in practice uh, in a collision with uh-huh. Bill Klein. 
and uh, up, you know, you basically had everything that you just talked about, and then you add a a Danny Manning uh, who was healthy and effective at that time, and that was a uh, that was an extremely talented team, and and I think an NBA championship team if he stays uh, healthy that year. Yeah, that was actually pretty darn incredible, man. With uh, with Danny Manning adding to, I mean, the the Suns went through a period where they were just be able just able to add to their talent each year without subtracting. Uh, that doesn't happen in today's NBA. I'll I'll tell you that. That is not something that happens on a regular basis for sure. Yeah, and you know, you know, that was uh, you talk about the free agents and stuff. You know, they had gotten Manning. <clears throat> uh, they had also th- that was after they had added AC Green. And they also added Wayne Tisdale. And these were all guys that they got on, you know, kind of small contracts and stuff. Not, well, A.C. Greens wasn't. But but Tisdale and, and Manning were, you know, signed minimum contract type deals just just to come to Phoenix. For and Suns were- listeners, that's um, that they, they actually, that loophole was in the CBA. And the collective bargaining yeah. agreement was closed years later because teams kept doing that. The good teams kept signing a really good free agent for one year at a league minimum and then giving them the contract they deserved a year later. Now, right. because of all the rules, you have to be under that kind of contract, no more than, I think, 20% different uh, for the, for two full years before you get your money. And, and free agents stop doing that. Danny Manning in today's salary cap era would not do that. Now, now the only sacrificing you're getting is Kevin Durant sacrificing a couple million dollars on the top of, end of his salary or LeBron James sacrificing a couple of million dollars on the top end of his salary to join the Heat a few years ago. That's the most benevolence you'll see from a player anymore. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, one of the reasons that the Suns were able to do that was, you know, they, they made good on on those situations. They, they were theoretically not allowed to uh, have any prearranged, uh, yeah. uh, you know, discussions, but... But, uh, you know, Danny Manning is the greatest uh, example. He was on that small contract when he blew out his knee. And uh, Jerry Colangelo still signed him to a long-term extension uh, with, you know, for the, for the money that he would have gotten if he had remained completely healthy. And he was never the same player, but he felt obligated to do that. All right, Tim, so you're, only allowed to... To, you're only allowed to count the first minute of that entire conversation. <laughs> If I have to go by the first minute of the conversation, I definitely have to go with Dave on that one because I think that anytime you have an all-star that is relegated to the bent, that just shows how much uh, the rest of the lineup, uh, how good it had to have been. So uh, I think Dave Woo-hoo! gets the, the point on the second All one. Right. So it's, it's a tie again, which is crazy because I feel like every time we do this segment, it's one and one. Because we're so good at our arguments, man. That's uh-huh. it, it's not in a sense of fairness or the fact that we don't even have a prize, so why have a winner? But it's it's because we all have great arguments to make, Tim. You know, I've thought about it though again, and I think that uh, I should have given the point to Greg last week, uh, <clears throat> just because he he was able to make a cohesive argument oh, as yeah. to why Robert Sharper <clears throat> gives the Suns a competitive advantage. And yeah. just being able to make the argument, I feel like I should have given, given it to him. Bob, Bob we, we periodically um, create opportunities for us to challenge ourselves to come up with a cohesive argument that we don't necessarily agree with on the whole, but we gotcha. try to win a debate club. And Greg right, actually right. made made a compelling argument for Robert Sarver being a good owner. That should be the the championship for the season, then, if you can <laughs> 
make that argument, that's like an all time. Okay, Bob. So I will I will ask you the same question, and I want to get how you would argue that that Robert Sarber uh, is a good owner. Uh, the question being, it is said that ownership is the greatest competitive advantage in the NBA. So by those standards, the Suns have the greatest competitive advantage in the NBA right now. Uh, I would not make that argument. I could not make that <laughs> argument. And I and I congratulate Espo for actually being able to do that because it can't be done. <laughs> I mean, I, I seriously, uh, you know, no no disrespect. I mean, he's just not. Uh, I don't know how you could make that argument. I mean, he hasn't done anything to deserve that. <laughs> I mean, honestly. Greg's argument argument was that he was willing to open his checkbook at certain moments and maybe maybe unexpectedly, but he certainly is willing to open the checkbook. Oh, like for for Shaq? Yeah, yeah, right. We said unexpectedly is the most uh, complimentary way to put that. We did want to ask you a question, though. Um, My understanding is that you have a a few more details on the Shea Gildress-Alexander trade that never happened. Yeah, well, what what I've been told is is and, and it's been reported uh, elsewhere, but uh, my understanding is that Ryan McDonough had a uh, he he had a he had a couple of plans in place, and the first the first was not to draft anybody with that pick, but to trade it for another unprotected first round pick, and then try to flip some of those picks that the team had to get. Uh, to get a kind of an established point guard. Um, and Robert didn't want to do that, and so they decided that they would try to work something to move up in the draft. And his, at that point, his plan was to try and work something for, for um, SGA. Sure. Yeah. yeah, and, and uh, had, he had apparently a deal in place, and, <clears throat> and then the, it became known that that. Uh, that uh, Philadelphia was trying to do something with the uh, with the Mikel Bridges pick, and and Mikel Bridges, and so they they ended up making a you know making that deal, and you know McDonough was trying to get he was trying to take care of the point guard position, and ended up with a fourth young wing player, which you know you you move you you give up, and they had to give up the uh, the unprotected Miami first round pick, which is. A lot of people will tell you that was the most valuable pick that was, you know, available out there because Miami was going to have to do this rebuild. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, that that's that's the way I was uh, told that all of that unfolded and that that Robert was actually, you know, screaming to make you know at at people to make the deal. Wow. Yeah. No. It's a, here's the here's my take on this whole thing because I, I followed that uh, when you were tweeting about it and also wrote about it a little bit and other people have covered it. Here's my take on it. Um, I really hope and I really don't think it's fair um, to actually give Ryan McDonough any credit for that um, exchange because it's something that never happened. Uh, you've got to actually, A, you've got to actually close that deal. And we uh, basically Robert Sarver nixed it before it could even be closed. So you don't know if the Suns would have been able to acquire Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Gilges- or the other, uh, you said the first uh, option was to and this is interesting too, uh, to flip that number 16 pick for an unprotected in the future so they could combine that with the Miami pick and get a establishment well, card that way. Not necessarily combine it, but use some of those assets. They would have had assets sure. to use. Yeah, whether they used all of them, it, that's 
That's another question. Well, but that's the that's the problem with uh, with Ryan McDonough as a GM. Is he acquired assets? He just didn't use them properly. I mean, he used almost every asset he had to acquire Marquise Chris. So really using them properly is the problem. That that would have always been the problem, always has been the problem. If you look at this Suns team right now, circling all the way back to present day, they're losing because they have zero talent outside their top two, three, four players. They just don't have enough NBA-level talent. And this is six years into, six seasons into Ryan McDonough's tenure of building rosters he doesn't have enough players on the roster who can actually be competitive NBA players. And that's him building those piece by piece. So um, I, 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 I hate watching people trying to give him credit for having potentially solved the Suns' biggest problem when he never did. And he had six years to even build a roster that was competitive. And he just didn't do that. So, yeah, you can rail on Robert Sarver for, for screaming over that one thing. But 90% of that roster was built on Ryan McDonough all by himself. Yeah, but you're you're making a big picture argument, which I don't disagree with. I, I but I'm talking about a specific example of where, you know, the, the general manager has something that he's trying to do, and the owner overrules yeah. him. And and you know, I I mean, we, in we'll a petulant way too. We'll right? never know what he would have done. With, and you're right. <laughs> I mean, it's it's like you can't assume either on either end of it. Really, you can't make that assumption. But. But you still, I think if you if you have a general manager, you have to let him do his job. Uh, and and my point, you know, the the thing with with Ryan is if if Robert Sarver believed all of that, and and he probably he probably did. Why why doesn't he just make that that change? You know, at right. that point, right? right? <laughs> why, why wait until nine days before the season and then? You know, throw every everybody thinks of this as a franchise in chaos, and you're trying to convince everybody, okay, we're all ready to go, and everything's in place, and now we're going to flip the switch. Oh, but first, I'm going to fire the general manager. It's like <laughs> you just throw it all into chaos again, and and then you know the absolute worst thing has happened in, in the wake of that. So, well, is I, there is know, there a po- is there anyway? You know that I, they they probably <laughs> didn't have a team that was in place that, but. You know, they—it's just the the perception of the culture around the league of the Suns is just—you know—it's just gotten worse. Well, and it's spot on. There isn't any way even people on the inside can disagree with the perception of the culture around the league. Right. It really yeah. is chaotic. It really is to where nobody knows what anybody else is doing, and it all comes down from the top. And I, and I know Robert Sarver cares. I know he really cares um, about what. Uh, you know, he really cares about what's going on with the team. Um, he really wants the team to win games. And he just uh, doesn't know how to make that actually happen. And that's a big, big problem. So I don't I don't know how the Suns are going to pull themselves out of this uh, beyond dumb luck. I really don't. Yeah, yeah. well, they, they have their work cut out for them, that's for sure. I, I think they, you know... As I said earlier, I think they've got to go and get themselves a, an established basketball guy that can that uh, you know that can take over the operation. And Robert needs to step back. You know, an owner's got to have the ability to to you know to make himself known. You know, to know, make his opinions known and and to even to overrule the guy. You just can't do it. You know, you can't do it all the time. You gotta you gotta let the guy do his job. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Bob, for uh, your time today. I'd love to have you back on later in the season. Hopefully, it'll be at a moment where we want to talk, 
talk about the actual current iteration of the team. Uh, so, <laughs> but thank you for letting us walk down memory lane today and your contributions. I appreciate it. Glad to do it. You just got done listening to the solar panel. For more great Suns content, check out the Timeline podcast for stuff like this. There's no way that Hakeem Olajuwon makes his own pancakes. I'm really sorry that you just made a great coherent point and that's all I had to respond with, but all it did was lead me to look up the fact that Akeem Olajuwon made $110 million in his NBA career and God knows how much since then. He easily has someone at his ranch to make his pancakes, right? That's The Timeline, a Phoenix Suns podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. 